Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old, don't know value. Welcome, everybody, to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we talk about customer perceived value and everything it takes company-wide to build, grow, develop, sell, and price customer perceived value. Today, I have an old friend, an old colleague, Jerry Gowan. Jerry, welcome. Hi, Mark. Uh, Jerry and I worked together at my first big boy job out of college. And Jerry was one of the masters at value selling. And so I wanted to get him on the Value Clarity podcast to kind of illustrate some stories that show the applications of what we talk about uh, in my training and in the Value Clarity podcast. So Jerry, I'm thrilled to have you here, man. Well, thanks, Mark. So Jerry... We, you know, one of the things that I talk about is that you can't sell value until you understand your customer's business. Marketing at most companies gives you features and benefits, but benefits don't turn into value uh, until you actually understand your customer's business and you can talk about your customer's outcome. And you are really good about understanding that. Do you have any stories of something that you did where understanding the customer's business? Uh, was something that turned into a huge win for you. Yeah, it's, uh, let's talk about a, a mini supercomputer manufacturer uh, down in South Florida. And uh, this is back in the day before multi-layer boards were developed. So essentially you had back planes and daughter cards that would plug into the back plane. Uh, they were essentially bedded nails. So you had these uh, 50,000 square posts that had coined edges on them, very sharp. Um, and typically um, in a high volume shop like this place, um, they ran in a machinery called a Gardner Denver FV14, which is a wire wrap machine. So just for the people who don't understand the electronics world, Back in the day, circuit boards only had the little uh, electrical pathway lines, the copper lines that you see on a circuit board. You could only do those on the surface of the circuit board, and they hadn't figured out yet how to make multiple layers so that you could have those copper lines going in multiple layers inside the circuit board. So when uh, a wiring diagram got really complex or when a circuit board got really complex, there had what Jerry calls a bed of nails, which was a series of brass posts that are square, 1 40th of an inch by 40th of an inch, 25 by 25 thousandths of an inch. And they were on a grid of 1 10th inch or 1 hundredth of an inch. And what you do instead of doing circuit lines inside was you take a little piece of wire and wrap it around the square corners of that brass post. And if you wrap it tight enough, the post digs into the copper and makes a solid connection that won't corrode or, or, or go bad over time. 
And so you'd, you'd have this machine, this Gardner Denver machine that would wrap them really tight and then run the wire to the next post where it had to go through the bed of nails, winding through that, uh, those sharp cornered square posts until you wrapped it to the other end and then you'd wrap the other end, you'd strip the end of the copper and then you'd wrap the bare copper kind of tightly around that uh, square, the destination square post uh, where you had to make the connection. And those things were under enough tension so that if you wrapped it around these sharp posts with the sharp corners that were made to grip the copper and dig into the copper when you wrapped them, they'd also cut through uh, the, the insulation or dielectric. And it wouldn't happen right away. It could happen slowly because that plastic slowly flows through away from that sharp edge. Correct. So the most common wire used back in the day was a material called kynar. And the kynar was notorious for cut through and cold flow. So um, this company got a contract from NASA to build 200 of these mini supercomputers to use at uh, Cape Canaveral. They wanted something better than Kynar. Again, you know, this is critical launch type equipment. Um, they, they couldn't afford to have a wire suddenly cold flow out and create an unintended connection or short or something like that. So there was an opportunity to go in um, and sell a very robust type of wire. Um, the two things there would be, one, you would have to have a very, very tough film, if you will, on, on the cable. And, and the other one is concentricity was very important. How well uh, a copper wire is perfectly centered in overall jacket. Gardner Denver spec'd out their machines at 800 wires per hour. And that was greatly affected by uh, eccentricities, et cetera, et cetera. So we had a material, a very, very tough, hard mylar-like film. And of course, if you had a one mil thick film and you wrapped it four times around a wire, you would have a four mil wall and the concentricity was always excellent. If you could do very, very tight diameter control, then you could actually increase the speed of the FB14. In the trials that I ran with them, we got it up to 1,200 wires per hour, a 50% increase in throughput, which greatly lowered the manufactured cost of the, of the backplanes and daughter carts. Um, in addition to that, backplanes had a little over maybe 5,000 feet of wire on them. And that 5,000 feet of wire was wrapped in multiple layers. They're called Z layers. So Z1 is the first wrap. And then you would come back and do a second wrap on top of that. That would be Z2. Uh, third wrap, that would be Z3, etc. So once you've wrapped these panels, you would put it on a, a test bed. And on average, they had about 35 cut through wires per backplane wrapped. So you'd had to go in manually by hand uh, and unwrap that, that bad wire, if you will. And it could be on this Z1 or Z2 or Z3, which means you got to go in and you might have to take a bunch of wires out to get to a few. Okay. So that was very time consuming and obviously expensive. 
So um, we uh, developed a process to determine uh, what the, the efficiencies and costs would be. And if you could eliminate even one bad wire, you could probably significantly raise the price of your product, uh, that is value price it, based on its installed cost. And that's landed out the door, okay? Um, and when uh, these manual repairs were done, well, then they'd wrap new wires and then they'd run it through the Ditmico again and they'd find out that, well, in that process, they damaged a couple of others. So then they would go back and repeat that process again. So imagine I'm walking into the buyer's office at this place. He's buying Kynar for $9 per thousand feet. And I'm walking in the door and I pretty much assessed that I could probably get about $30 per thousand feet based on the improvements of throughput speed and the elimination of cut wires. And then there was the added benefit on the back end of uh, eliminating the possibility of cold flow. Of course, the buyer didn't appreciate any of that. Um, and, and the first time I came in, because after we did this big study and everything, you know, the manufacturing engineering team said, this is a no-brainer. You know, uh, we wrote a specification um, and they said, you know, go buy this stuff. So, you know, I sit down with the buyer and he flipped his wig when I told him it was $30 per thousand feet. He literally threw me out of his office and told me, don't ever talk to my engineering team again. For that matter, don't even come in my lobby. Just get out of here, you know. But uh, in, in the end, you know, it, it took a while for the engineering team to teach the purchasing team value. There, yeah, there are so many lessons there, Jerry. I'm going to stop for a second because one, every purchasing agent I've ever met is actually chartered to buy on value. Right. They just aren't trained to understand value and they are trained to not, under, to not trust your explanation of value. And so when you went to that manufacturing team and did your study and this, the, the manufacturing team taught the purchasing person, um, certainly they got it. They just didn't appreciate it because their compensation system was based on the price of the wire. And they probably, you know, that was back in the days when a lot of purchasing organizations, their compensation was just on that commodity. More modern purchasing comp systems and comp plans are based on total value, a total sure. loss. Sure. Um, and so you're probably one of the folks that helped initiate that move in the purchasing discipline to go from price to total value? Well, as uh, multi-layer boards started, you know, slowly but surely uh, moved into that type of packaging, they were still wire wrapping, okay, but not as much because now they could run half their signal states in one layer and then only have to wrap another layer, so to speak, okay? Yeah. So yeah, the second layer in the board replaces Z1 and the third player in the board replaces Z2 and maybe even part of Z3. And right. so the more layers you can have, the fewer Z wraps you have. But you know, if it was gonna be a 15 Zs, 
you're still going to be doing some. Yep. And, uh, you know, I was selling a bunch of wire to them back in the day, like uh, 15 million feet a year um, at $30 per thousand feet. I mean, do the math. It, it was gold mine. Um, and then as these uh, multi-layer boards started to evolve, the number of wires started to drop. So I think by the time they completely converted over, uh, I was maybe only selling them uh, four or five million feet a year instead of 15 million. So I was losing a lot of revenue. Uh, and I also just saw the handwriting on the wall, you know, uh, the, the buggy whip is gone, you know, the automobile's in, right? So um, I had to, and this is something I think a lot of salespeople do a very poor job of is they don't understand life cycles very well. And when they do get to end of life, um, you have to have a strategy for exiting that that business, whatever piece of that business it was. So um, what I would do is I would raise their prices about 15% per year. <laughs> so as their wire use went down, I was always raising the price up. And, uh, you know, once again, here comes the battle with the purchasing agent. <laughs> yeah. That guy was a piece of work. But well, uh, you, know, you can't blame them. You know, the val yeah. your value changes over time. I've heard one uh, person tell me one time, you will never have greater value than on the first day that you deliver something. Because after that, you know, the cat's out of the bag, right? Now, yep. what are they going to do? They're going to try and value. There's actually teams called value engineering in a lot of organizations today. And that's what they try and do is they try and tweak that value position. They're looking for the sweet spot, so to speak. Yeah. So they'll reverse engineer everything they can to get the manufactured costs down. So, yeah, value engineering is it, it, that that's a cruel hoax name for that function because it's really <laughs> <laughs> it's really cost engineering. Yeah, um, which is you know it's it's okay. Uh, you and I had another one that actually we worked on together. Um, there's a company that made avionics and one of their products was uh, inside of a commercial jet airliner. If you've ever seen behind the nose cone, the, the nose of a jet airliner is just a plastic, heavy plastic cone. Uh, it's, a that, dome, right? that it, it's called a ray dome, which is a radar mm -hmm. dome. And behind that dome, there's a little radar dish that's maybe 18 inches in diameter, and it sweeps left to right. The whole time the plane is in the air, that thing is sweeping left to right. So there's a radar dish scanning forward to look for clouds and, and look for weather. So it's a, it's a weather radar dish so that the plane can steer around the clouds when, you know, when the pilot's telling you uh, we're steering, we're going around this cloud, it's because he, he knows exactly He's figured out a route through the clouds at his altitude. And so inside there, there's wires that go through. And so imagine um, that radar, it's going through, the, the cable came out of the back of that radar dish and then went vertically. And so the, the cable was twisting torsionally in a wrist motion, back and forth, back and forth. 
And so uh, there was another cable that had already been specced and we were trying to design a competitor out. And you came to, you called me and said, you know, here's this cable. And I said, they're already satisfied with it. Why, you know, what value do we add? I'd still tell that story uh, myself, but I'd, I'd love to get your version of that same one. Okay, so if you remember, uh, it was uh, an older, uh, most senior engineer that uh, I was working with at the time. I remember him. And he uh, he was a tough cookie. It was pretty difficult to try and change his, his level of thinking. But the way the competitor's cable was packaged was a straight shot up. So it was like bending a coat hanger back and forth. And um, I just kept trying to explain to him that, you know, you're, you got this hysteretic stress strain uh, function going on as you're bending that wire back and forth and you're, you're going to get fatigue. You're, you're going to crack the copper and you're going to, you know, lose your, your connection there. And, oh, he just kept pushing us to try and come up with different things. And then, if I'm not mistaken, it was you that said, why don't they just wind it around like a clock spring? And just let the spring kind of open and close and open and close. That way you're not getting this hysteresis of flexing this wire back and forth. Um, so we finally convinced him <laughs> to try and do that. And he says, okay, Mr. Brilliant, right? Uh, meaning you. Um, let's see if you can get me 50 million flex cycles. He just pulled a number out of his hat, right? And we're there like, uh, okay. <laughs> so uh, he tested that for like, it was over six months. I remember. He finally caved in. It's like, I can't believe it. I'm not talking about the clock spring one. I'm talking about the one where we, it was a 10 conductor ribbon cable. There's three of them in a, in a stack and we slid it so that it, for about three or four <laughs> inches, it was just 10 or it was 30 loose wires and they were twisting uh, torsionally. As those 30 cables rubbed across each other, as it was flexing, the, the insulation would wear off. Just happened to be that the, the plastic, the kind of polymer we used, had better abrasion resistance when you rubbed it on itself. The, the other kind was better against sandpaper or tool steel, but ours was better when you rubbed it against itself. And so right. they loved that. And we actually did outlast them and then we added this cool little feature where uh, our, our um, manufacturing process put the insulation on in two layers. So we put the inner layer on in red and the outer layer on in gray so that as that thing wore, uh, you could actually tell when the insulation was half gone because the gray would, you'd get a little red spot on it. And so the technicians who were servicing that thing could look at it and find and get an instant wear indicator well in advance of a failure. Sure. Uh, so you got a little bit ahead of me because we originally started out with that clock spring. Okay. Oh. And then they uh, always had to deal with something called rain in the plane, a plane at altitude. Um, it's, you know, minus six CF up there in the sky, uh, it gets real cold. And then when you're landing, let's say in Miami, it's real warm and very humid. There'd be a lot of condensation that would occur. Um, so the, it wasn't an IDC termination, uh, excuse me, that's an insulation displacement connector. 
um, where you kind of just crunch it on, contacts pierce straight through the uh, plastic to, you know. Uh, yeah, we had to crimp the uh, conductor, I, 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 but yeah. um, so they had to, um, you're familiar with the grease fitting? An electrical grease fitting. Yep. So okay. You, you crimp a little ring connector, but then you put some grease on to insulate it. Right, right, right. So that's what they would do. They were taking the the cable and slitting out the ends, kind of fanning them out. And then they were just using, you know, bolt style terminations. And then they would grease the terminations to make sure they wouldn't short out when you had this uh, rain in the plane phenomena. And it was at that point in time where the genius of uh, Mark Boundy said, well, why don't we not do it this way? Why don't we do it this way? So um, that's where that transition came from that clock spring to that bunch of slid out primary wires. Ah, okay. I don't there was, a, there was a step in between there. Okay, so. I kept on giving you credit for that idea in the story. So Jerry, you're talking matter-of-factly about understanding that rain in the plane, the condensation and the, the low pressure performance and the low temperature performance and understanding all of that is way it's when you're trying to understand the customer's world, the customer's business, that was kind of the coin of the realm in our business. And um, when I would travel with you, we would go into one place and we would be talking about aircraft avionics and then you'd take me to the next place and we were building, you know, it was an R&D, a defense R&D company. And they were talking about some spook electronics. And then we'd go to somebody who's making robotics and we had to talk flex life. And then we'd go to somebody else. And it was all about, it wasn't moving. It was just all about electrical performance. And each time uh, you could seamlessly shift gears to say, well, in this business, this is what's important. And these things, you know, that thing that we we're talking about wasn't important. Uh, I learned so much from you in terms of understanding that customer business. So I was always kind of a, a curious kid. I always wanted to know what makes things work. Day after Christmas, I would get my one of my sister's Chatty Cathy dolls and cut them apart. <laughs> you know, it had that little pull string on it. <laughs> it was like a little record player inside, right? That would make them make them talk. Each time you pull pulled the string, it would say something different, right? And um, I always had this natural curiosity of things. You know, how does that work? Um, and you can't read a book. You have to read hundreds of books, <laughs> and it's going to be this amalgamation of knowledge. And I read very wide and very broad. Um, and most of the stuff I read is nonfiction. So um, it's always just been that natural curiosity. Um, and I, I don't know how you can teach that, Mark. I, I really don't know. But um, there's a lot of difference between selling stock and selling microwave interconnects or radar systems and satellites, right? So uh, there's a skill set that's required for any given application, and you will never maximize your value 
to the greatest extent possible if you don't have the right kind of people lined up with the opportunity. So a lot of the value premise uh, really is, um, it's more in your people, the skill levels of your people, I think, than perhaps the products themselves, because it's your skill level that opens the door. The, the products will speak for themselves, but uh, how do you get there? You know, how, yeah, you know, how do you I, figure I, out where where is that that value point that's so painful it's just a tiny little bit too expensive to sell so you're going to discount that price back someplace get it below the pain threshold yeah yeah one of the biggest problems is, is that a lot of companies have today is is they either hire the wrong people to do the right job or they don't train them well enough to be able to do an excellent job. So, you know, Jerry, when, when we were together at Gore, I mean, you were exceptional, but there was a lot of people who had that curiosity and a lot of people who took the time to understand the customer's business because right. the product manager, when you call the product manager, I remember my first week uh, as a product manager, I was with... I was in, you know, one of the plants talking to a, one of the experienced guys and a sales guy called in, the product manager picked up and, you know, the sales guy said, I think I've found a customer who wants your product and product manager said, what's the value? And the salesperson says, I don't know yet, but let me tell you about the application. And the product manager said, no, find out what our value is and slam the phone down on the guy's ear. So <laughs> product managers would challenge salespeople. Engineers would challenge the product managers. Man, the manufacturing folks wouldn't give you a prototype until you understood the value. So the entire company forced that curiosity. The culture forced it. So you're a naturally curious guy. And so you could do it for industry after industry. But I think the company forced that discipline on each other so that even some people who weren't as naturally curious as you could still do well and understand the customer because it was unacceptable and you couldn't get anything done if you hadn't asked that, hadn't asked, understood the customer's business. You, you buy it or am I, am I misremembering the world? Oh, no. I mean, you know, there's so much push and pull <laughs> internally <clears throat> and externally. And, you know, trying to manage, uh, you know, this uh, uh, diametrically opposed kinds of issues, uh, uh, you know, that's quite a hat trick. Um, yeah. You know, you know you're I, right. I, yeah. Pitch for my book. I talk in radical value about making the entire company focused on value. And right. so what I talk about, the reason I talk about that is because I saw it work really well. And that company was as focused on value as any of the hundreds of companies that I've, you know, been in, worked with, consulted with since then. So the bad thing is it's rare. The good thing is it's possible. And so I wanted to write a book about what's possible and challenge people to that super elite level of understanding your customer's business and understanding your world, their world. Oh, yeah. um, a, a quote from... A guy I highly respect, his name's Richard Mott. He was, at the time, a director of engineering at uh, one of my accounts. And we got into 
a discussion, a team discussion. I had several Gore people there, and and uh, of course he had his staff there too. And when we started talking about how, how can you make this perfect, and this was just Richard throwing that out there and trying to challenge it, and then everybody had a <laughs> pretty much a different tack or take on you know how to become perfect. And and Mott said, you know. You can have ordinary people do extraordinary things. People don't have to be perfect. Teams do. So it's that seamless integration between all those little functions that you had mentioned uh, that can produce this perfect value. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the culture at Gore was great. You know, Bill Gore used to say, you know, if you're not making mistakes, you're not hard trying hard enough you're not working hard enough yeah then you hear guys like elon musk today that'll say um i don't care if you have a bachelor's degree i don't care if you got a master's degree i think people with master's degree ruin more businesses than they help create he said i i want the curious people i want people that just want to think outside the box and go out and, and do stuff and, and try things. And, and uh, you know, if you instill that kind of belief in yourself and your company, I, I think that has a tremendous amount of value to, to your organization, you know. And then it's just how do we apply this innate value that we have to a given opportunity at a customer house, you know. How, how do we... Uh, you know, how do we align around that opportunity and, and what do we need to, to do to win? So, yeah, it's like. Well, a, I, yeah, I like that. And I think that's a great place to end this episode. We're a couple minutes over, but I think it's been a great conversation. Let's record another one where we talk, go deeper into the culture that it takes and all of the people it takes and the team it takes uh, on our next episode. So, Jerry, thank you. It was fun, Mark. Always is. Yep. And uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast, where we believe that value only exists in your customer's mind, which means your success with your customer really only happens in your customer's head. Thanks and have a high value day. Well, it ain't easy because value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're going to drive both of you insane. And if you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues because you'll be singing those old don't know value blues. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.